Proverbs, God's wisdom for gospel living. Started the series back in June. We're wrapping it up. This week and next week, we'll finish up um, looking this week. Uh, last week, we looked at marriage. This week, we'll look at sexual purity. The Bible has a lot to say about it. And then next week, we'll look at children. Uh, the week after that, we'll do community groups. And then September 20th, Back to Church Sunday, we begin a new series you're new here, we like to go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're going to be in the gospel according to John for a little while, uh, starting September 20th, kind of an introductory to the book, uh, kind of set the groundwork as we look through that book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in, though, Proverbs as we wrap up. Uh, the word proverb, mishal, in the Hebrew, means saying or similar to, it's a likeness, and the likeness, something over here is like something over here. Um, the book has been put together divinely by God as, um, you know, observations and reflections of wise men of faith about the way things usually work, their axioms, their truisms. They, they may not be true all the time at the moment, but they will be ultimately true in eternity. That's Proverbs. The word wisdom means skill or good sense. It's how men of faith uh, and women of faith can obtain the ability and the skill to choose the right course of action, the one which God would want us to move and what direction and choices we make. Some stuff that is not clear for us in Scripture. So we need wisdom, learning and the ability to skill to choose the God-centered life, the way in which we listen and walk with Jesus, right? So we said gospel-centered, everything is gospel-centered around here. Uh, wisdom is, is seen and, and keenly expressed as we live life in humility, a humble life that both demonstrates and declares the gospel. It's loving people and showing people with our life, as I was mentioning with Brian, that we treasure Jesus above all things in everyday life. I said last week that we need to seek and know the wisdom of God, the gospel wisdom, particularly in marriage and in family. Last week, we talked about marriage. We talked about how marriage has been defined by God. We talked about how Proverbs teaches us. We looked at six characteristics for women, six characteristics for men, to choosing a spouse and how wisdom, the wisdom literature, teaches us important things about choosing a spouse. This week is about sexual fulfillment. Proverbs has not been given to us so that we live experientially and learn from experience. You ever see that? Live and learn. That's, what I, that's something I used to say. Uh, maybe, I was, maybe I got it from my childhood, I remember. But live and learn. Wisdom says learn. Listen. Watch others. Read the scriptures. Submit to Jesus. Learn. Then live. Not live and learn, but learn and live. And how important that is when it comes to sexual purity, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Chapter 5 of Proverbs. Hear the word of the Lord. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion. Your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as two-edged sword. Her feet, they go down to death. Her path, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, verse 7. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Gain knowledge. Right? That's what he's saying. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you'll groan when your flesh and body are consumed. You'll say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of the teachers or incline my ear to instructions. I'm at the brink of utter ruin. In the assembly of the congregation, verse 15, the wise, the sage says, drink water. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street? Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with the light. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. May God add a blessing to the reading, comprehension, and understanding of his holy word this morning. That's where we're at. Maybe you said, wow, I didn't know that was in the Bible. There's a lot of stuff like that in Scripture. So let's follow this line. Let's follow this teaching. Let's follow this under three headings. First is the Lord to sin. He talks about the Lord down to sin and to Sheol, the grave. Number two, the longing that satisfies Look, the longing that satisfies, that word, I don't know why it's like that, but the longing that satisfies and then the love of the Savior. So that's where we're going. The longing that satisfies the love of the Savior. So let's look at the first thing, and that is the Lord to sin. Proverbs, I don't know if you know this or not, if you, hopefully you read the book, has a lot to say about sex. Just in case you didn't know, you know, marriage and sex was created by God and given to man and woman for several reasons. It's not like God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, set them in the garden, took a nap, woke up and said, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I didn't know that. Marriage was given for partnership, for pleasure, for procreation, and we'll see as we end. It's a picture of the gospel. The entire book, there's a book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon, A Song of Songs, dedicated towards relationships, sexual relationships. The scriptures are not shy about sex. It's, its message is pretty clear. Sexual sin and folly destroys, and sexual wisdom will not only bring fulfillment and satisfaction, but sexual fulfillment actually points to something greater. And here's the thing I want you to understand, first and foremost, as we get into this topic, and I know it's going to be quiet around here, and that's okay. God speaks, the scriptures speak, the sages speak about sexual fulfillment in terms of limits and liberation, boundaries and boldness. Now, depending on the experience that you've grown up, depends on what your house looks like growing up. Sometimes you're brought up in a home where sexuality and the topic of, of sex, uh, there's not even a tiny little bit of prudishness. It's just out there. Everyone's talking about it. It reminds me of the, of the movie the, uh, Meet the Fockers, right, with Gaylord Fockers. Roz is like having his sex therapy class, and everyone's just invited to join in and have this class. There's boldness, right, and liberation within this sexual intimacy. Or maybe you grew up in a more conservative home where conservatives love to talk about not the, not the liberation or the boldness, but they love to talk about the limits and the boundaries. And whenever it comes up in your home and your kids, you're quick to remind them about the limits and, 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 and where it needs to, you know, sit itself and, and, and the, the, you know, the, 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 the boundaries of sexual intimacy. Progressive people love freedom. They love liberation. They love openness. Conservatives love limits and boundaries and restraints. There's been several throughout the history of, of this world and, and, and this, the cultures, there's been several attitudes, if we can use that term, towards sexual intimacy. Some people believe it's a, a biological drive. I'm hungry, I eat, I sleep. I, you know, I'm tired, I sleep. I feel sexy, I have sex. It's, it's a biological drive. That's all it is. Some people, what's called sexual Platonism, it comes from Plato, believe that the body is bad, it is the spirit that is good, and, and the teaching that comes from that is sexuality, sexual intimacy is bad, it's dirty, it, it's, it's something we don't discuss, it's a necessary evil in order to populate the world. Many years, you know, years ago particularly, you know, the Christian church has bought into some of that. Some Times there was this what's called repressed creativity. It's not biological. It's not a necessary evil, but it's this self-expression. It's a way in which I find myself. I, I, I find my personality. I find my, my personhood. We see that a lot today in this consumer mentality about our sexuality. Personal fulfillment 
And sex becomes, for many, a measure of its value. If it's safe, you're not hurting anybody, it doesn't really matter, just go for it. But the truth is, what the Scriptures teach is, and what God has declared is, is that, like all other desires, in the fall, in Genesis 3, it's been twisted, it's been tainted, it's been, it's been messed up with, by sin. The reason, or I should say the purposes and the desires of sexual intimacy finds its fulfillment in the gospel. The gospel points to the reality of a covenant of marriage. We'll get back to that, but look at 5. Look at Proverbs 5. You see this lore. There's, there's, this, there's this lore to, to walk away from the gospel, to walk away from what God has declared, and, and it's real. It's real. Many of you know that. Okay, look at what it says in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understandings, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smooth, smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Notice what he's saying. Temptation, the offer of sexual pleasure outside the covenant marriage, was offered as honey. Very attractive. But verse 4 says, it's what? Bitter in the end. In other words, don't be fooled by the upfront taste, by, by how good it looks, by the delightful taste in your mouth, because in the end, it does not go well. Don't be short-sighted. Sexual sin many times has to do with being short-sighted. Unfortunately, it's become an appetite in our culture that has become a tyrant demanding fulfillment with no boundaries and no consequence. And we see the consequences here. Ruined relationships, shattering relationships for those who disregard God's provision. And, and you may ask why. I hope you do. Why are we so captivated in this culture? Why are we so easily lured into sexual sins? Now, there's a lot of reasons, I'm sure, but let me give us one today that I think is foundational. Foundational why this, this lure to step outside the boundaries of God and to enjoy the freedom within marriage for sexual sin, for sex. Here's what I believe, what the Scripture teaches. There's an inward focus that's going on. There's an inward focus, and it's all about meeting my needs alone. And what happens is, sexual intimacy provides a physical answer to a personal problem. Okay, here's what I mean. There's chaos, out-of-control cravings, disregard to the gospel and to Jesus, right? And it's an attempt to promote an attempt to continue Satan's lie that we were not created in the Imago Dei, that we were created for just these urges, that we're not connected with our God. There's a lie that wants to continue, and that eternal joy, true eternal joy, can only be found in a personal relationship with God. When we are disconnected from Him, it creates within us a longing to be loved, to be accepted, to be vulnerable, to feel a sense of being valued and, and worthwhile. And when we're disconnected from God in a relationship, in that Imago Dei, in, the, in reality that we were created in His image and likeness to worship Him and give Him first place in our life, that longing, we search for it in the wrong way. The emptiness, that emptiness finds short-term fulfillment like a, a short-term anesthetic during sexual intimacy. When there is rejection, there is emptiness, there is fear, there is loneliness... We gain relief through physical senses, whether it's eating, gambling, addictions. It's a sense of brokenness. It's a sense of real intimacy, and we find a short-term fix in physical pleasure. Here's the problem, family. It works so well. But in its end, there's destruction. In its end, there is guilt and there is shame. For the moment, the woman who feels undesirable gets her validation. The young lady who feels very insecure and unwanted for the moment feels secure and wanted. 
For the man who feels inadequate, unmanly, and insignificant for the moment, he feels manly, significant, and adequate. But it's a farce. It's a sham. When we do this, we have created an idol, our functional savior, something we look to in the place of God. We seek love. We seek security. Our rest, our contentment, our sense of importance and identity in other things than our creator God. Ernest Becker wrote this. The failure of romantic love has a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern day's frustration. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However, much we may idealize and idolize him or her, the love partner, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfections after all. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position, this idol worship? We want to rid of our faults our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified to know our existence has not been in vain. He says we want redemption, nothing else. Needless to say, human partners cannot give this to us. Physical pleasure, personal problem. There's a story in the Bible in Genesis about Jacob and two wives, Rachel and Leah. Many of you know the story. Chapter 29 opens up with, with um, Jacob running for his life. He had, he had manipulated his brothers Esau he had manipulated his father to give his, him the blessing that Esau was supposed to get. And he's running for his life because his brother says, I'm going to kill you when I find you. It's a good place to run. If your brother wants to kill you, you should run, right? Now he's running for his life. And Jacob, we know, is also a mama's boy. We saw that when we looked at Genesis. He was a man who, who was his mama's son but didn't get that validation that many men seek from their own fathers. And the story goes, he's running, he runs into Laban, his uncle, and he sees Rachel. He's unwilling, though, to marry Leah, the sister of Rachel, even though Leah is older, and in that culture, that was the right thing to do. It wasn't because of her great and wonderful character that he wanted to marry the younger, not the older. It says in the scripture that he saw her, and she was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. I don't need, you don't need, right? You, you following me? Okay. So he says, I'll work for her seven years. Now, you're only supposed to do maybe two, 30 or 40 shekels. He's like, I'll give seven years. Double the fun, I want her. Like, you, you can see his heart, where his heart is at. I just want to have her, right? There's this emptiness, there's this running, there's this lack of validation, and all he wants is to have this woman. He's willing to do whatever he wants. After seven years, in Genesis chapter 29, verse 29, this is what he tells Laban. Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Now, if that sounds rude and gross, it's worse in the Hebrew. In the original, original, it's like, give me her, I want sex, I want it now. I've earned it, give her to me. Now, one Hebrew commentator said, here's a man who is emotionally and sexually overwhelmed with longing. Now, we're going to talk about it. There's nothing wrong with longing for your covenant wife or your covenant husband. But it's when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing that it becomes a disordered idol thing. And that's what we see in Jacob. Tim Keller writes this. We may wonder how Jacob could be so gullible, but Jacob's behavior was that of an addict. There are many ways that romantic love can function as a kind of drug to help us escape the reality of our lives. Our fears and inner barrenness make love a narcotic, a way to medication, a way to medicate ourselves, and addicts always make foolish, distractive choices, end quote. Whatever our heart is, heart is drawn to, be it personal passion, human approval, relationship, comfort, Whatever it pulls that's more fundamental to our love and acceptance in the gospel becomes our identity and becomes an idol. Jacob's emptiness and his demeanor shows what he was all about. Give me Rachel now. Let me fix my life. Let me, let me put her in that place of emptiness that only God can give me. And look at the consequences of, of this out-of-control idolatry. Uh, Proverbs 5.5 5. Okay, Proverbs 5, 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. 
and she does not know it. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Verse 23, he dies for a lack of discipline. All right, so that's verse 6 and verse 22 and 23. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. Verse 22, we're talking about death, consequences. And he is held fast in the cords of sin. That's verse 22. Look at verse 23. He dies for the lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Death, Sheol, synonymous, the grave, the abode of the Old Testament spoke about is an Old Testament idiom. What he's saying is true sexual fulfillment is not found in forbidden love. In fact, in forbidden love leads to death. It's not exclusive to men. I know here he's talking to his son. I get that. But this is not exclusive to men. Now, I'm not sure he's talking about physical death. That this, this promiscuity, this stepping outside the boundaries, this, this sexual immorality is, is, can cause physical death. All of us have heard the stories, right? Where an adulterous relationship ended with a wife or a husband with a nine millimeter. So I'm not really sure. It, it could mean physical. It definitely means spiritual. It definitely means uh, uh, death of relationships. Right? Unless one repents of their sin, trusts in Jesus, eternal separation is called hell. Right? So we have to trust you, we have to repent of our sins. Verse 6 says, although she speaks with lips of honey, death brings disorientation. She's walking around. She doesn't know. Look at verse 8. Keep you away from her, man. Don't go near the door of her house. Run, Forrest, run. That's what it's saying. <laughs> Proverbs 6, can a man carry next to his chest, fire next to his chest, and his clothes not be burned? No. It's the answer. You play with fire, you're getting burned. Verses 9 through 14 speak about how sexual sin complicates everything. Uh, You lose vitality, strength, reputation, disgrace before the community. It's a problem. And and this strength and this, this, this sense of loss. And now listen to me, young people. Your virginity is not something that can be restored. Yes, there is forgiveness of all sins. We're going to talk about that. There is forgiveness. But there are consequences. And sexual sins scorch the sinner in an undeniable way. I love you. I'm speaking the truth. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin commits Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul says they are joined with that one. Right? It's not the king of all sins or the unpardonable sins. I'm not saying that. But it leaves an undeniable mark. John Calvin said it well. He said this. It creates a stain that is unlike any other. And it introduces a disintegration into a person that leaves them forever changed and affected. He says, not beyond redemption. And that's true. Not beyond forgiveness. Not beyond healing, mind you. But nevertheless, a scar. Something that remains. Something that you'll carry about and bear the rest of your life. And the only way is the final and great healing when we meet the Lord and he takes it away. Look at the text. Verse 1. Pay attention. Okay, son? Pay attention. Daughter, pay attention. Verse 7, listen to me. That's what he's saying. Proverbs 4, 27. Do not swerve to the left or to the right. Turn your foot from evil. In other words, keep going. Keep going straight. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man. Can we say there's a way that seems right to a woman? Absolutely. Can we add? I think we should add. There's a way that seems right to the man or to the woman. Maybe feels right. But in it end, but in its end, it leads to death. Now, we're all guilty. All right, maybe you don't want to hear that. We're all guilty, in some way, shape, or form. If you're breathing a many amount of long time, there's some sort of form of sexual sin. Okay, I am not trying to heap guilt. We're going to talk about that. I'm just sharing the truth about the lure to sin, the lure to sexual sin, that although it tastes well going down, there is gall, bitter in the end. So now what? There's a longing that satisfies. Look at verse 15 through 19. 
it's straightforward. It, it's candid. What the, what, what, the, what the sage is doing, what the wise man is doing, is he's, he's contrasting forbidden love, sinful sexual intimacy outside of marriage, and the God-given, God-glorifying love of sacred intimacy within a marriage. That's the contrast. Now, I said this last week. I'm not going to get into all the nuances. I'll just simply say, one man, one woman, covenant marriage, sexual fulfillment, everything else is wrong and sinful. I'm not going to tell you everything we're against. I'm only going to tell you what we're for. The Bible is perfectly clear. All other sexual intimacy is sin and wrong and it leads to death. Here we see this wisdom teacher, this mentor, telling us what marriage is supposed to be like. And look what it says first. It goes from the negative to the positive, right? This is the, this is the lure. This is what trapment is. This is death. Let me give you the positive. And it begins with the exclusivity of a marriage relation. Look at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Cisterns, well, Hebrew poetry of female sexuality, right? We don't need to get into detail, but you can imagine, but don't do it now, but this has to do with sexual intimacy. And again, it begins with honey, tastes sweet, ends bitterly. Here it says it flows. It's sweet. It's filling. It's satisfying. That's what it's saying here, that her sexuality in this covenant of marriage should flow and remain flowing. What this is talking about is satisfaction and a picture is of one of love and enjoyment and fulfillment within marriage. What the sage, what the wise man is telling us is there are limits and there's liberation. Right? There are boundaries, but there's boldness of sexual love but it must be confined. Look at verse 16. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Like, no, not out there. Verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. There are things we share. Your wife, your husband isn't one of them, right? Look what it says. He says, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. They got married young back then. But basically what they're saying is let your wife and the enjoyment of her satisfy you. This is not a cold kind of distant action. This is marked by rejoicing. So you have flowing water from her. You have the fountain from him and it's husband and wife. This is the picture. Filling and refreshing each other. One like a flowing stream, the other like a fountain. A man and a woman pledged to each other in marriage can experience this satisfaction, this fulfillment when it comes with love and commitment and purity, right? So casual sex outside of covenant marriage is forbidden. Hebrews 13, 4, let me give you that one. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. But God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. All right, so there's this bold rejoicing there's not any bit of prudishness, but there is this boundaries as well for a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. So you have, there's exclusivity. Look what it says next, verse, uh, the next verse, verse 19. You have exclusivity and then you have exhilaration, verse 19. A lovely deer, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Now, some of you guys may think, well, you know what? I shoot deer and eat them. <laughs> yeah, now what he's talking about, right? This is a, the Hebrew of iniquity, uh, excuse me, antiquity, something very, very different. This is Semitic poetry. Maybe it's not something you write on your wife's card. You know, uh, uh, the, the wonderful deer. You know, I don't know. But she might be thinking it's coming, you know, November's coming, hunting season. I know where his mind is at. I don't know. But the word here, intoxicated, NIV, captivated, New American Standard, exhilarated, is a word that literally meant to be staggering drunk. He's not promoting that. He's just using the word as a metaphor. And the wise man is saying, let your marriage, this is what your marriage should be like. You should be absolutely crazy, ravished, infatuated, intoxicated, drunk in your spouse's love. It's this intoxicated, romantic, sexual love that the sage says that will help you to remain one that will, will stop you from temptation and dangers that will destroy your marriage. Now, hear me. If you're single, I am not saying go out, find a spouse because what I'm teaching today. But, but, 
I stand with the Apostle Paul. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. There is a dynamic of getting married because of sexual temptation. Over and over, the Bible speaks about marriage being one plus one equals one, right? Union. And the reason that sexual intimacy can be so fulfilling, joyful, exhilarating, elating in marriage is because of deep commitment and covenant that one has made in marriage. Tim Keller writes this, Sex is a covenantal renewal ceremony for the marriage. The physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all other areas, economic, legal, personal, psychological, created by the marriage covenant. Sex renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant, end quote. You see, if, if there is physical union, sexual intimacy with a person, without, without any kind of union in covenant, in deep meaning in which God intended, it is not what God wants. Actually, it is empty. It, 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 we know the hurt and pain that it causes. Now, we can get physically undressed, but what we're doing, listen, what we're doing in our fornication, in intimacy with someone who's not your covenant husband, not your covenant wife. You're saying, I can make myself vulnerable. And nakedness in the Bible is vulnerability. It's weakness. It's, it's showing all its blemishes and faults. What you're telling that person is, I'm willing to do that to fulfill my need, but I'm not willing to be completely naked with you and join you in covenant marriage. That's what you're telling them. That I'm not going to completely give myself to you. That's not what God intended. That's why porn is so high and there's so much money going toward that. That's why friends sleep together, friends with benefits, you name it. I want the commitment, that piece, but I don't want to make a real commitment with you. And God says, no. That is not the fulfillment, that is not the satisfaction, that is not what I have for you. He's not being a killjoy. He's actually protecting and loving and providing for us. Again, Tim Keller says this, physical nakedness without total nakedness, covenant marriage, violates the meaning and the purpose of sex. Marriage is to be a lifelong binding agreement. And sex in marriage is the type of covenantal renewal ceremony in which you say, I am completely yours, end quote. If you don't use it that way, the way in which God gives us the boldness and the boundaries, the limits the freedom, you'll end up hurt. You'll end up, as Proverbs says, in the darkness. Now, last. So it's, it's exclusive, it's exhilarating, and it's endless. Look what it says, 19. Let her breast fill you out at all times with the light be intoxicated always in her love. Now, I want to be careful, but let, let's be honest, okay? Let, let's be honest about that passage. Okay, in fact, let's turn. I have it written here if you don't have it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what it says about sexual intimacy and the frequency of sexual intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. N-I-V, N-A-S, his duty, her duty. Okay, obligation and responsibility of the husband within the context of, of sexual fulfillment in marriage. Men, it's your job to fulfill, excuse me, your marital duty, and that is to meet your wife's needs in marriage, sexual needs. Now, that's a great verse. No alarm needed, right? You know, that's all I'm here for duty, ma'am. You know what I mean? <laughs> now, the rest of the verse says, and likewise, the wife to her husband. So men, you have that responsibility. Ladies, you have that responsibility. And a lot of guys are going, what does that really mean? You hope well, you know what it means. That's what it means, right? The obligation says for both. Look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 7. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-controls. 
What that means is should be regularly serving each other and meeting each other's sexual needs. Mutual satisfaction and joy in the bedroom is good and right, and Christian should enjoy one another. It's proper, it's sacred, and it's something that we enter into marriage in an agreement to do. It is honor, it is, excuse me, it is dishonoring to God if we are not meeting each other's sexual needs. And for the record, 1 Corinthians 7, the verbs, tenses mean continually fulfilling your duty. Okay, someone may say, well, pastor, can you define continually? <laughs> the guys are like, well, you got to brush your teeth three times a day. The lady's like, ah, we change the oil three times a month. But you guys figure that out. <laughs> but I can tell you what it doesn't say. It does not say that the ultimate ownership of the wife, the ultimate ownership of the man is each other because Paul just finished saying that you were bought with the price, glorify God with your body. He has the ultimate say. Right? He has the ultimate say. So according to the whole counsel of God, we, our body belongs to the Lord, yet there is a clear mutual submission and ownership of our bodies when we get married. If you're single, it belongs to you and the Lord. If you're married, it belongs to you, the Lord, and your spouse. So practically speaking, my wife comes home, it's late, do I have time to go to the gym? Yes. That's my body. Go work it out. That's what I tell her. But anyway, so a godly husband, you'll get that later, but a godly husband wants to fulfill his obligations and satisfy her and love her, and a godly woman wants to fulfill and satisfy his needs as well, okay? It doesn't exclude the husband. I, I, just, I, I just open up this can of worms. I just want to say, it doesn't exclude the husband and his wife from being sensitive to the emotional and physical states of one another. Right? We don't ask our spouse to do something that the scriptures forbid. So it doesn't mean, guys, girls, that we are hateful toward one another and expect there to be intimacy. If there's no intimacy in your marriage, it's probably, in fact, I guarantee it, something deeper going on in your marriage. But neither should a partner consistently try to get out of satisfying his or her spouse's sexual needs as they have made this covenant relationship with each other. Okay, so, guys, uh, when your wife says, come here and cuddle with me and brush my hair, guess what? You're cuddling with her, <laughs> you're brushing her hair. When she says, honey, please go change your socks, it's killing me, you say, yes, ma'am, and you go and change your socks. <laughs> Husbands, be a delight to your wife. When she thinks of you during the day, let her put a smile on her face. Wives, be a light to your husband. Be as beautiful of appearance as you can be and give yourself to your husband. Work at intimacy if you are married here today. Work at having intimacy with your spouse that will satisfy each other. Work at pleasing and considering one another. Tell each other in words and deeds how much you love and appreciate them. Yes, even sexually. As the years go on, as your marriage continues, let it be more and more and more a testimony of the truth of your vows that you have made in your marriage covenant. Take time to spend with each other alone. Get away with one another. And finally, not only longing satisfied, but look at the love of the Savior. I said earlier that marriage points to something greater than just a marriage. Tell each other in words and deeds, right? It's good, it's right, we need to do that, but it points to something else. A man and a woman in covenant marriage who have loved each other and joined together in the covenant, committing themselves to a lifelong of vows and fulfillment, right? Faithfulness, uniting together till death do us part in sexual intimacy is pointing to the mega relationship romance of Jesus Christ and his church. Forever in love with his bride. Sex is beautiful because it shows us an analogy of Christ's love for us. The New Testament often compares the relationship between a husband and wife to Christ and the church. The gospel, this ultimate love relationship of the Son of God coming down to this broken and twisted and jacked up world to capture with, with great suffering a bride, pouring his love out on her who does not earn it deserve it by any moral record and God created us God created marriage for the purpose 
for the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to him through his love for us as an analogy. More than any other reason, your marriage, your sexual intimacy, your relationship should reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a witness to the gospel. It is a witness to the covenantal relationship of the gospel. It points to that. Look at Romans 7, 1 through 4. Do you not know, Paul writes, for I am speaking to those who, are, who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman, look, he's bringing in marriage, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. He's pointing to the law and, and to Christ, and he'll tell you why in a minute. She marries another man, she is not an adulterer. He's talking about marriage, he's talking about sexual intimacy. He's talking about adultery. And then look at verse 4. Likewise, here's my point, brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you, you, that you may belong to another, to him, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit in God. There's a relationship, there's a oneness, there's a death and a oneness to Christ. So in Paul's worldview, the ultimate purpose of sex is not personal. It's not self-expression. It's not biological urges. It reflects, it, 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 it reflects, it imitates God and the witness to the gospel in the kingdom of God. God himself gave to us his Christ unconditionally. That is the gospel. And he calls us to give ourselves and one to another in marital relationship unconditionally to him. The last quote of Tim Keller. I love this quote. God does not offer to, listen, God does not offer or ask for intimacy without complete whole life commitment. If you demand intimacy yet keep control of your life, you are living contradiction of both the way God relates to you and the way we relate to each other in the Christian community. Sex is for fully committed relationships because it is a foretaste of the joy that comes from being in complete union with God. So, so I, I think we call it, I thought about this this morning, gospel sex. I mean, the gospel is that we are in covenant with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are one with him. He fulfills our longing of love, acceptance, security, forgiveness. Even when he sees our nakedness, our vulnerability, our, our, you know, our, 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 all our idiosyncrasies and issues that we have, and yet he loves us anyway. And out of that we get to enjoy in all our flaws and weaknesses. We get to enjoy the intimacy of our spouse through sexual intimacy. If you read Ephesians 5, and I won't read it because we don't have time, about men who loving their wives, caring for the wives, caring for their own bodies, under this guidelines that sexual union is in within covenant marriage, pointing to the covenant of Christ and his church, you'll see a beautiful picture of it. The joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that it brings is in covenant and a foretaste of the experience with Christ. Even the Old Testament, when God described his relationship to covenant Israel, even when they went, as he says, whoring around, it has to do with marriage, prostitution, or coming back to the one true God. That's, the, that's what he uses. Now, we're going to go to communion. I, I, I don't want anyone to lose me here. This is really important. You need to hear the rest of this. Okay? I have just two more minutes here. Proverbs 5.21 says this. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquity of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led away. So the eyes of the Lord are before us always. The iniquity entraps us. We are held by our sins, and by our stupidity and folly and sin, we're being led astray. That's what he's saying. And as true as that is, do you know that it's a picture of the gospel? Do you know that in Isaiah 53, listen to these words, it says Jesus was pierced for our sin, transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Right relationship with God. Look at verse 6. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became a sin offering and substitute, died on the cross. And in that gospel truth, there is complete forgiveness of sins. I realize that a message about sexual purity can be very difficult. Maybe it's part of your past. Maybe there are scars that you are dealing with. And even though you know the sense of God's forgiveness, there is those scars. And maybe you're, you're dancing too close to the fire. Maybe you're caught up in sexual sins even today. Hear the gospel call. For the kindness of God leads to repentance. The kindness of God leads to repentance. As difficult as it is and how hard to, to break the bondage of our sins and to be healed of our scars, it is not, hear me family, sexual immorality is not the unpardonable, unforgivable sins. If you are trapped, God wants to heal you. For God's kindness leads to that door of repentance. All of us have scars. All of us have been hurt of one kind or another. And all of us have committed sins. And through forgiveness... Even though we have scars, and sometimes, you know, let me just say, it could be problematic. God is greater than the scars. God is greater and can heal. And yes, the scars may be part of the, the sanctifying process. Romans tells us that he works all things out for the good for those who, call, who love him and are called according to his purposes. But we can't, we, we, we just can't make believe this doesn't exist Right? We're called to confess, to acknowledge, not to skirt the truth about our sexual sins, and then to repent means to turn and receive God's complete and sufficient forgiveness, falling on his mercy, falling on his grace, clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ, being washed in the blood and being set free and clean before him. Right? That's what the gospel is. He will make a new and a clean sexual life possible for you in marriage if we cling to the old rugged cross. If we repent and receive God's complete mercy and forgiveness. Horatio Spofford, many of you know him, he was a Christian lawyer. He lived in Chicago back in the 1800s. He had a beautiful wife, four daughters, and a son. Okay, he was a devout Christian. And in the height of his, of his lawyer practice, his son died. He was, I think he was four or five years old. A few years later, in October 8, 1871, a great Chicago fire happened, and he lost almost everything. His son died two years later. He lost everything. Two years after that, he scheduled a trip to send his daughters, four daughters, and his wife over to Europe to spend some time and get some rest during this devastating time in this family's life. And on the trip, the boat sank. Four daughters drowned. He gets a letter from his wife saying, all of our children have drowned. Come over to me, he, she says. He gets on the next shift and board a, a next ship. And on his way to England, where his wife Anna was, who was grieving, it was on this trip out on this ocean that he penned these words that you know. When sorrow like sea billows roll, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know what's so interesting about that song? Let me tell you what. In the midst of that, do you know what brought him ultimate comfort? He stood on the boat looking over the sea that swallowed up his children, and this is what he wrote as well. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Even in the midst of tragedy, his ultimate rejoicing was God's great kindness and forgiveness toward a repentant sinner. And he knew that someday he would see his children, but what was most important in his life, what was penultimate in his life, is that God receives and forgives sinners. That's what it's about. That is the gospel. That is what he sang about. The communion table, it represents and is a picture of the gospel. So I'm going to, as a good pastor, and I love you, 
is call the church to repentance. If there's sexual sin in your life, now's the time to get right with God. It's confessing, agreeing with God. I'm not living the way I ought to in my sexuality. I am not, this is what I'm into, this is what I'm doing, I need to stop. I repent, I turn from my sins, I'm trusting in you. The band's going to play, we're going to confess and repent of sins. But the bread and the cup represents his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. So we're going to rejoice. I want to rejoice in the forgiveness of God. I want to ask him for the power to change. I want to walk in obedience to him. Because family, let me tell you this. The gospel says when you look at the cross, you see your sexual sins and how filthy and gross and sinful you are. Jesus had to die, but then you continue to look at the cross, you say, look how loved I am, look how accepted I am, look how forgiven I am. That's the gospel. So sinful, he had to die, as Keller says, but so loved and valued, he was glad to. So we're going to take communion together, we're going to sing, we're going to worship, we're going to confess, we're going to repent, and we're going to rejoice. If you're a Christian, this table's for you. If you repent of this table, is for you. Let's do business with God. Maybe you need a friend, a mentor. You call the church, we'll talk. If you know somebody, hey, I'm struggling. I, I, you may need to make changes in your life. You may need to bump up your prayer life. You may have some uh, brothers or sisters, uh, you know, the same sex, talking with you and walking. There's other things we can do, but let's start with repentance. You can call one of the pastor elders. We will help you if you're trapped in sin and you just seem to not get out of it. We'll, we'll help you through that. Other things we can do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awesome Word from your mouth. The scriptures are so clear. You have been so kind to us and loving toward us. Father, you want what's best for your children like a father would want for his kids. Lord, even as we want for our own kids. So God, we pray, Lord, that you would grant us repentance. Lord, that you would use even our past to bring glory to you as you redeem and forgive and cleanse the brokenness of our lives. So Father, we pray that we would be a people that are quick to point at our own struggles, our own sins, before we point at other people. Lord, may we deal with sexual purity and intimacy in our own marriages, in our own lives, in our own church, so that you would get the glory in that relationship, in our marriage, and the world would see that, yes, we're different because of Master Jesus. As we walk with him in wisdom, we pray in Jesus' good name, amen.